Excellent. If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started at this time. And if you could open up your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21 is the passage of Scripture we're going to read from this morning. And uh, Numbers 21, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 9. So Numbers 21... One through nine. Um, there's a there was a Bible study slide for the women's Bible study that was up during the break, and it said Wednesday nights. It's going to be on Tuesdays, so Tuesday morning and Tuesday nights. Um, so just make note of that, um, and we'll have to make sure that that gets edited. The men's Bible study is on Wednesday nights. The women's Bible study is on Tuesday morning and Tuesday nights, and the women's Bible study starts September. 18th. So please make note of that. I was also informed that Jen Vucinovich had a 10-pound baby boy this week. It's one of the advantages of being on Facebook, which I am not. And so I talked with Mario a little bit earlier in the week and uh, connected with him, and they were just in the midst of it. So I wasn't sure if they had the baby. Thank you for coming and sharing with me that they had a 10-pound baby boy. And let's be praying for Mario and Jen in their uh, recovery of... Um, the giving birth of their baby boy. Um, Numbers chapter 21. This this sermon here is going to cover the chapters between Numbers chapter 12 through 21. And so if you have your Bibles out and ready to roll, because we're going to just kind of flow through uh, different chapters and sections pretty quickly and address different things. Um, as we're going through our series, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture, like right now we're in the book of Numbers. We've gone through Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, and now we're in Numbers. Um, I was just thinking about this earlier. Um, we're going to at times cover large sections of Scripture and only be able to hone in on little sections for the exegesis on a given morning. And so it would be really helpful um, if you're in the Word that we're going through. Like, So if we're looking through Numbers 12 through uh, 21 today, we're, we just got done reading that in our Bible reading program for our church, and so you can kind of track along. We're trying to move it in sync with the sermon series, and uh, but even if you're not able to read through the Bible reading plan, maybe it would be a good goal as we're going through the book of Numbers to read Numbers just in your devotional time, or read Deuteronomy when we go into Deuteronomy, so that as we're hitting different words and phrases and sections and contexts, it's just kind of fresh and it'll come alive for you as you're encountering it in the in the preached word. And so um, I'm really excited about doing that together with you. Numbers chapter 21 verses 1 through 9 is going to be the section of scripture that we read today. So let's read God's word together. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Ephraim, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. And Israel vowed a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into my hand, then I will devote their cities to destruction. And the Lord heeded the voice of Israel. Isn't that a great phrase? The Lord heeded the words of Israel, the voice of Israel. Let that inspire our prayer lives, brothers and sisters. And gave over the Canaanites, and they devoted them and their cities to destruction. So the name of the place was called Hormah. Verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. You may remember that the Edomites denied them passage, and so they had to go around and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people, 
so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. The title of the message this morning is Look to Christ and Live. Look to Christ and live. Let's let's pray together. Almighty God, I ask that you would pour out the Holy Spirit upon us as we read your word and study it through the preaching of the word this morning. We pray, God, that you would cause your word to come to life in our hearts and awaken our hearts, Lord God, to follow you with more devotion and passion. Help us all as a congregation this morning to look afresh to Christ, and to live. And Lord, for any unbeliever here, we pray that they would look to Christ and be saved. Lord, we pray that You would change our hearts this morning as we gather. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Um, this section here is, is talking about, they're kind of beginning to move toward the promised land. And you see this because they're engaging with the Canaanites, and actually, they're actually, this is the first kind of conquest of Canaan that begins the process where we're kind of beginning to build up toward the end of the 40 year of the wilderness wanderings and heading toward the book of not just Deuteronomy, but Joshua. Remember, the book of Numbers covers the time period of the 40 years in the wilderness. And so you're starting to see a, a progression take place even between these chapters of 12 and 21 of where the Israelites start to engage with the Canaanites and start to defeat them, but they're also still encountering the trials of the wilderness at the same time. They're not in the promised land yet. So they're fighting battles, but they're also encountering hunger and thirst, and they're being tempted by that, and they're also tempted to speak against God and against Moses once again. We've been seeing this as a pattern throughout the book of Numbers that we see, keep seeing God's people looking away from God. And there's a pattern that happens here over these 40 years is that when God's people look away from God, they begin to stumble into unbelief. They begin to stumble into doubt. And they begin to go wayward. The answer is, as this passage of Scripture delineates, the answer is to look to God. To look to Christ and to live. This, this section here, it's an interesting thing, but God says to Moses to construct a bronze serpent. And what took place is the individuals who were snake bitten by sin, if you will, these fiery serpents that the Lord sends out that are, that bite the people and the people are dying because of it. There's a remedy that God provides. And this is such good news for us in the midst of the provocation of God's people against Him, speaking against Him in their sin. The Lord brings the fiery serpents and there's consequences to their sin, but the Lord also provides the remedy for them to be healed of their snake bite. And that's for a bronze serpent to be constructed and set on a pole and lifted up high in the camp. So that wherever anybody was at in the camp, if they were snake bitten, they could look to the bronze serpent and they would live. This is what God prescribed. It's so interesting, but in John chapter 3, in the, in the wonderful section of Scripture that has John 3.16 in it, the Word of God actually says that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also Christ was lifted up. And so the passage in the other gospel talks about when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. This bronze serpent points to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. This is a 
is a, is a passage that points to Jesus Christ. And God shows that by hoisting His Son up on a pole, any one of us who are snake-bitten by sin and on the pathway, not just to physical death, but eternal death, here's the Gospel. Anyone who looks to Christ in the camp will live. And not just live with temporal healing, but you will be eternally healed, rescued from the second death, eternal punishment in hell, and be given the gift of eternal life. What good news is this? That we have a God who provides the remedy of His Son dying on the cross and being lifted up. And so when Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to Myself, there is this uh, irresistible dynamic of when we look and see Christ hanging on the cross in agony for our sins. We are irresistibly drawn by the grace of God, those who are coming to Christ, to look to Him. And when we look to Him, we live. But throughout all of these sections, building up to Numbers 21, we seem to just have example after example of God's people failing to look at Him on the whole. You have a certain pocket, a, a small remnant that look to God and trust God. But so many stories again and again seem to point to the Israelites looking away from God in this section. And it really becomes sort of a, a low watermark. This section represents really a time of much wandering on the part of Israel. But here's the good news. It also demonstrates the amazing faithfulness of God to His people as well. And so I want to look at two points this morning. The first being, look away from God and die. That's number one. Look away from God and die. And secondly, look to God and live. Look to God and live. Let's look firstly at look away from God and die. And for this, I want to have you just kind of flip over in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 12. And this is where we left off last week. We looked at Numbers 11. Remember when the people, and Tom mentioned this in worship, said, is the arm of the Lord, uh, God said to the people, is the arm of the Lord too short? Because they didn't believe that God could provide meat for them in the wilderness. Moses himself as the leader actually said, God, if you were to slaughter all the cattle, and if you were to bring all the fish out of the ocean, how in the world could you feed 600,000 people in the desert? And he doubts God. We learned a great lesson last week. Uh, don't doubt that God can do anything. And brothers and sisters, let us drink that in deep. As we look at our own lives right now, we can be tempted to doubt as we look at different circumstances in our lives. One of the applications from last week is let us look to God and trust in Him because He can do anything. You know, I got home and something was gnawing on me last week. I kept thinking... I think I didn't quite nail the calculations on the bird meat that God provided with the quail in the wilderness. And I realized when I calculated it all out, I calculated it for one homer of quail per family. And it says God provided 10 homers per family. And so I was off by a, a, a factor of 10. I said 36 million pounds of quail meat provided to cover 600,000 people in the wilderness, uh, might want to up that to uh, 360 million pounds of meat. Sorry about that. I was a little off. I, I, I got fascinated by this after I got home from church. And, you know, I'm just like, man, everything went in the fog. And I'm like, I got to figure this out. This is just awesome as you look and see what the Lord provided. I mentioned last week, and this was accurate, there were, within a day's walk of the camp, Israelites walked out and there were, Three feet deep quail that had been brought in by the Lord and brought for the Israelites to be able to, to access the quail and to eat meat in the wilderness. Um, one scholar calculates that this represented about 1,900 to 2,000 birds per family unit. And so there's like family unit after family unit, most likely out there in the wilderness probably carrying sheepfolds, all of them needing to hoist because this was about 
475 to 500 pounds per family to cover meat for a month for them to eat. They were so full of the quail by the time they got through the month that, brothers and sisters, as God said, you're actually going to get sick of it because I'm going to provide in so much abundance. And we just see the power of God. He could do anything. But immediately, there, you see this transition after the Lord provides so abundantly where God's people begin to look away from Him and begin to doubt His power when He is so mighty and so powerful. Numbers chapter 12 reflects one story where uh, Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. They begin, and this is a manifestation of looking away from God and Miriam and Aaron. And I'm going to need to fly through this section a little bit and and track with me because there's a lot of different applications that I believe the Holy Spirit is going to be bringing home into your heart and into my heart as we look at these. But I think um, these are fascinating, but I kind of want to get through them, and I'm going to need to, for the sake of time, just move pretty quickly. So Mo- Miriam and Aaron opposed Moses because, verse 1 says, of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he married a Cushite woman. Moses chose a wife, the daughter of Midian, Jethro from Midian, the high priest who uh, helped Moses out as he was fleeing Egypt. He married Jethro's daughter, and she had a different skin color than the Israelites. It, some scholars think that she was from Ethiopia, modern-day Ethiopia, that that's what Cush represents. Most scholars think that Cush was actually in the, the, the neighborhood of Arabia, in, 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 in the Saudi Arabia region, and that her skin color was a little bit lighter than, than Ethiopian skin color, but it, that it was different from the Israelites still. There was a distinction. She was an outsider. She was not a native Israelite. She was kind of engrafted in as Moses' wife, and they didn't like it. And th- this wasn't just like somebody in the camp. This was Aaron, the high priest, and Miriam who in previous chapters, after they're delivered from Exodus, takes up the tambourine and praises God. And we see a parallel here between this and James 3, where out of our tongue we both praise God and we also curse men. She takes up a cause against Moses and speaks ill of him, and God is not happy about it. They begin to look away from God who called Moses and his wife together in the covenant of marriage. And they begin to really give way to a form of racial prejudice in the Old Testament here. And they they really judge Moses for the wife he chose. And in doing that, Miriam actually breaks out in leprosy. If you just keep following along through Numbers 12, the Lord brings leprosy on Miriam and and. And, and there's a pleading for her to be healed, and the Lord mercifully heals her, but it actually is written that Miriam had to go outside the camp because she became unclean with the leprosy, and, and there's a consequence to her turning away from her eyes on God and starting to focus on other matters, not looking to God and how God ordained Moses' marriage exactly as he ordained it. She complained about it, grumbled about it, and she was provoking the Lord in that and looking away from God leads ultimately to death. But it does bring consequences for Miriam. She had to go outside the camp. Now pay attention because that theme of outside the camp keeps coming up throughout this section of Scripture. In fact, a little bit later on, um, you'll see that the sacrifice that needed to be made for the sin offering needed to also be burned outside the camp later on. And what that points to, here's another sighting of Christ. And this is what I love doing with you, church. It's just awesome. Jesus, and you see this in the book of Hebrews, needed to be taken outside the camp, outside the walls of Jerusalem. When he died on the cross, and he died on the hill called Calvary. Brothers and sisters, he was he died outside the camp. And what this means is that he was bearing our curse for our sin and he was taken outside he was shut out so that we who look to Christ and live might enter in 
and be able to be here this morning forgiven and reconciled to God. Aren't you so thankful? Aren't you so thankful for the good news of the gospel? Aren't you so thankful that Christ went outside the camp? We see here that just like Miriam, it would have been us that would have had to go outside the camp and that forever. We would have been shut out. Thessalonians says from the presence of God, the benevolent presence of God forever. We would have been judged in hell forever, but because Christ died outside the camp and He was God forsaken, we here, brothers and sisters today, will never be God forsaken, those of us who look to Christ and live. Good, good news. Good, good news. And then the transitions, you think, okay, well that's going to kind of smooth out and things are going to get better again, but, but not so, brothers and sisters. Look at Numbers chapter 13, you might recall this story. It's a famous story where the Israelites send the spies out to spy on the land of Canaan. And one of the themes that you see is that there's a real theme for courage being needed that kind of picks up all the way through the book of Joshua. There's this repeated phrase, and you'll see this again and again, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. And there's much need for that in our own souls right now as we look at our own Christian lives. And I don't know where that applies to any of you right now, but being strong and courageous was also needed for the spies that were sent into Canaan. And in, in the t- section 25 through 33, the report of the spies, th- this is a heartbreaking section because they actually go into the land of Canaan and they actually bring back some of the fruit. It's actually recorded that the fruit that they had to bring was so abundant and beautiful and weighty that they had to carry it on poles to bring it back into the camp. This is how good the promised land is. And it's a picture of how awesome heaven's going to be. It's like these little nuggets of pointing to Christ, pointing to our future glory for those of us who have looked to Christ in faith and have lived. And it's tragic because they 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 bring the fruit and the spies, the, the, the ten spies that come back, they report a bad report to the leaders, and to the nation. All with the exception of two. Joshua and Caleb have a different spirit, the Word of God says. The difference between Joshua and Caleb and the other ten spies is that Joshua and Caleb were wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. That's the phrase in the NIV. They they fixed their eyes on God and they didn't fix their eyes on what the other ten did. What did the other ten spies focus on? There's giants in the land. And we were, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. And they actually used this phrase, we are not able. And it just takes the entire nation of Israel down. Down. Into them also looking away from God, which led to death. There's a little phrase later on in, in, in 14 at the very end. It, it's, I, I caught it and it just staggered me in the Bible reading plan. Do you know that all 10 of those spies died in the plague? It actually records that they died for that bad report. When God calls something good and he says that I'm going to deliver you into it, no matter what your eyes see, It's a test of faith. We need to look at that and say, it doesn't matter there's giants in the land. And you know what? It's true. We are like grasshoppers trying to face these obstacles that are in our way in the promised land. Brothers and sisters, we need to stand up and say like Joshua and Caleb, the Lord is with us. God is with us. Brothers, don't you remember how we were gathering the quail three feet deep? Not too long ago? Oh, brothers and sisters, I look at this in my own life and I just see it so quickly, don't you? Just how how fast my eyes get turned off of the power of God and onto my circumstances. And, and, and looking at the giants in the land rather than our giant God who's able to drive the giants out of the land. Joshua and Caleb had a different spirit. They kept their eyes on God They were wholeheartedly devoted to the Lord. Christ community, may you and I have this same spirit. And where we see our spirit falter, let us take it very, 
very seriously. Let us repent over where we doubt God, where we fail to trust Him, even with big tests of faith. And when we repent, when we turn to Him, He is faithful and just. When we confess our sins, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9 says, let us never forget that the Gospel applies to our current battles and where we're falling short. But let us also remember there's consequences that come from doubting God. It's because of their unbelief and then the people of Israel following suit. It actually says in the beginning of 14, look at 14.1, it's, it's just tragic. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept. And it, it was just this weeping of unbelief. Oh, tiny little God. We're not able. I look into my own life so often, I could just see that heart cry come out. Like, no! No! It's true that we're not able. That's where Satan will often tempt us with something that's true. We aren't able. God is able. Isn't He, brothers and sisters? God is able, and when He moves... He is able to empower a people that regard themselves as small to drive out giants in the land. And may we all look to Christ this morning and live. Let us look to Him for the circumstances we're facing and remember that even though we're not able, He is able. The people of Israel in 14, 1-12, they actually say, you know what, let us choose new leaders and go back to Egypt. As if the, the journey back to Egypt is going to be any easier than the journey forward to the promised land at this point. But this is, we want to go back. And, and l- listen, here comes the criticisms on, on, on the leadership of Moses and the leadership of Aaron. And they, they just, it, it just becomes a constant chorus throughout this section where they begin to take their eyes off of the power of God and they begin to blame their leaders. They begin to blame God and it all begins to sink. And yet in the midst of that, in the midst of God being much provoked, he stays faithful and he endures with his sinful people. What amazing grace that God never gives up on us, brothers and sisters, even in the midst of our many failings and sins. Aren't you so thankful for that? I know I am very thankful for that. Let that be applied into your own heart right now. When they do this, the Lord begins to break out. And in, in 14, 13 through 19, if you look uh, in your Bibles, your phones with me here in this section, 14 through 19 of Numbers uh, chapter 14, Moses actually intercedes on behalf of the people. And again, that language of intercession, you have to connect that. And remember that Moses here is a type of Christ who is the great intercessor, who's the great advocate. And Moses says, God, don't do this. Don't destroy the people. Let the power of the Lord be great, Moses says. It's actually this great phrase. Let the power of the Lord be great. Forgive and pardon this people for their sins. And then we see the power of intercession. That God is a God that when Christ intercedes on our behalf and He says, Father, forgive CB, for he knows not what he does. The Father responds and forgives the wickedness of this heart and also the wickedness of your heart. And it actually says that God says, if you look in verse 20 of Numbers 14, it's a great Word, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. So God pardoned according to Moses' word. New Testament, God pardons according to Christ's word. Don't you love this? There's Christ everywhere. Your book of numbers. It's a great quiet time spot. This this part of the Bible's alive. I, I always I always cringe when I hear individuals saying, Oh man, I get so bored in the Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, like, oh, I died down there. No, listen, brothers and sisters, it's because we skim and we don't dig into the treasure that the book of Numbers has. And we see here, I have pardoned according to your word. 
that's meant to cause your brain and the Holy Spirit to come alive with all kinds of New Testament connections about Christ. And to marvel that though God also punishes sin, He pardons the sin of those who look to Christ and live. Amen? So listen, you might have been beat down this past week over many sins and feel like, oh God, how am I even able to come in here to worship today after all that I've done against you this week? Oh brother, oh sister, I understand. I can relate. Look to Christ this morning and live. Confess and forsake your sin this morning and live. Look to Him and know that God said to Moses, I have pardoned Moses according to your word. And let's be encouraged that though He is a God who punishes sin, and judges sin justly at all times. His mercy and His grace are great, and He pardons iniquity, transgression, and sin. But there were consequences. Their sin was pardoned, and yet they still had to live with the consequences as a nation that came upon them. And by the way, so did Joshua and Caleb. Forty extra years in the wilderness. Because of their unbelief. And they, they, they wept saying that the giants are going to kill our kids. And God actually says, no, your kids, they're going to see the promised land. But you will not. This entire generation is going to die in the wilderness. And brothers and sisters, we need to see that our, our sin, our complaining, our grumbling, our discontent, our anger, our charging God, our, it affects God. He's provoked by my complaining. It's it's not like when I complain that God's just like, oh, there he goes again. There's my boy complaining and doubting me again. Oh, I forgive him. My grace is abundant. It affects him. Just as any father is, is provoked rightly to, to be moved when his son or daughter rebels against him, it affects him, though it doesn't remove his love. He pardons the iniquity and yet he also was much provoked and there are consequences as well. And we need to understand that and, and let it motivate us toward holiness of life. God is greatly glorified and pleased when we trust Him and when we look to Him and live. He also can be greatly provoked and angered and displeased. We will never fall out of the favor of God, but brothers and sisters, we can displease our Father not in a way that ever shakes us loose from His favor and His acceptance. Ever. That's secure in grace in Christ. But my actions as a son, your actions as a son and daughter, the real. I think sometimes we forget that. We just kind of live our lives and, you know, we, we're not thinking about God. We're not looking at how our sin and our complaining and our attitude, our bad moods, they affect not only our family, they affect the Lord as well. And it's just important to just keep lifting up prayers like, God, I'm so sorry for my attitude today. Please forgive me, God. Because the grumbling and the complaining, the bad report, it's so interesting that it begins in the heart with complaining, but it then voices itself vocally out from the people. It's very rare for discontentment to just stay in the heart it gets voiced and when it gets voiced it not only affects your own life it also takes down your family not down in terms of irreparable but faith is contagious in the same way grumbling and complaining and believing a bad report and doubting god is likewise contagious. And it has an effect. My sins affect Shannon. They affect my kids. They affect you. And we all have that same effect. And that's why it's important to recognize that, God, there's a great opportunity here. If you just focus on the negative part of that, you can think of bringing down. Think of the opportunity we have to right now in our lives, repent of the doubt and unbelief and say, God, I'm looking to you now. I'm going to be like Joshua and Caleb with this situation. By your grace, empower me, Holy Spirit, to do so. Yeah, there's giants in the land. So what? We're going to drive them out. Not because we're able, but because God's able. 
Why don't we start speaking like that into our job situation a little bit? Start speaking like that into the things in our lives right now that just won't dislodge or the sin battle that you have that just won't budge and get out of there even despite your best mortification efforts, why don't we start taking a little bit of Joshua and Caleb to those things? Instead of acting more like the spies who reported a bad report and took Israel down. I'm I'm affected by this. I want to grow in this, and I know you do as well. It actually says in Psalm 96 about this section that what they did here with God, the phrase is they put God to the proof. They put him to the test, but 96 says they put him to the proof. Yeah, God, show me something. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't believe that you'll do it. I don't trust you. I know I just picked up three feet of quail and 1900 birds for my family in the midst of a desert. That doesn't move me. Oh, brothers and sisters, I so want to get up out of that and on top of that by the power of the spirit and start saying, Lord, I'm not going to put you to the test here. I'm going to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar, throw us in the furnace. But even if you don't deliver us, God, we're still not going to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. I'd rather burn than compromise my faith in God. I'd rather burn in the fire than to stop looking at my Savior. And brothers and sisters, when we look at Christ in the fires of our lives, we will find ourselves dancing with Christ just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, dancing with one who looked like the son of the gods, Nebuchadnezzar said, in the fiery furnace. Let us keep our eyes on Christ and live and not take our eyes off of God and die. Well, it it just continues on and on. 15, 1 through 31, in God's grace, he gives commands that pertain to the promised land which is so gracious in light of the way that he just said to them, you know what, you're actually going to be another 40 years in. It's it's an interesting interlude at the end of 14. If you look at that, it actually says that after this happened, they they kind of wept again and they they were so sad that their unbelief stopped them from being able to go directly into promised land. And what do they do? They, they, They don't look to God again. And the very giants that they were terrified of now, on the flip side, In their own fleshly strength, they rise up, don't look to God, and they doubt God's word. And they say, I know God just said we're going to be another 40 years. We don't believe that either. Let's go in and take the land ourselves. And they get a beat down. I just think, oh, gosh, Lord, this is so how we are. This is so how I am. I I go from doubting your grace to presuming on your grace. I go from fleshly fear to fleshly courage. Oh, that God might give us grace to look to Him and live. And and, in Numbers 15, 37 through 41, we see an admonition, brothers and sisters, to make tassels and to put them on our clothing so that we'll remember God's Word. And I, I think... There's a great practice there that the Israelites would practice where, yeah, certainly the Pharisees turned it into something Pharisaical, but it was a good practice of keeping the word of God central on your person, keeping the word of God close, keeping the word of God. When you open up your phone, you got a scripture there to see. And that's just one small possible application to the tassels section. But in order to keep looking to God and living, in order to keep being like Joshua and Caleb and not like the 10 spies, we need a regular influx of the word. And I, my quiet times, I thank God for them. But man, I need a fresh dart to stick at the enemy in the middle of the day. And my quiet time feels distant by the time I get to later on in the day. The tassels principle, get out those little index cards and write those verses on your fridge and put them in your purse and put them in your back pocket and write scripture on your hand, students, at school. And, 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 and just when you get tempted with that person who's really just tempting you again at school, Get that verse that God gave you and send it like a dart at the evil one and remember God's word. Saturate yourself in God's word to help fuel you continuing to look to God and living. Amen? Oh, gosh. Am I ever going to get through, like, a full sermon here? I mean, it's just so loaded. It's like, 
It's like we're eating a steak dinner every week of, of these chapters. After all of that, you think, okay, we're, we're surely beyond it now. Korah's rebellion happens. In Numbers 16, 1 through 40, that's motivated by 250 followers of a man named Korah who due to their selfish ambition and vain conceit questioned Moses and Aaron's spiritual leadership of the nation. And they actually charge them as putting themselves in charge. And they, they're not going to have it anymore. And they're not going to listen to them. And it, it tempts Moses to great anger. And it tempts God and provokes him as well. And God acts. And brothers and sisters, those who rise up against Moses are actually... It's a crazy section there in number 16. The ground actually opens and Korah and his followers, as well as his family and their families, were basically fell into a, a chasm that the Lord opened up and they died because of their selfish ambition. They took their eyes off of God that God has given us Moses. God has given us Aaron. And they, they were just nonstop questioning their leadership to the point where they said, we're not taking it anymore. We're actually going to rise up here and challenge you. And the Lord acts decisively, and they pay a drastic price receiving consequences for their sin. They blame Moses and Aaron. And then it actually says that when the people actually don't relent and start dying, Aaron the high priest goes in 41 through 50 of chapter 16. And it says that the high priest Aaron stood between the dead and the living and staved off the plague. And I think about our high priest, Jesus Christ, who interposes himself in between us and he stops the plague from hitting us. He stops the wrath of God from hitting us. Again, there's an image, not just of Moses being a type of Christ, but of Aaron the high priest being a pointer to Christ, our high priest, and how he stops the plague from coming and hitting us by taking it on himself, on the cross. He bears the wrath, we get the grace. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In 17, Aaron's staff buds, and it's put in the ark, and it's carried along with the ark. And I love it, it just says, ripe almonds grew on the staff overnight. Ripe almonds? It's like God's like, listen, this is the one I've put in as high priest. Not the rest of you. Aaron is my man. I'm vindicating him by causing the staff to bud. A good New Testament parallel for this can be that God also vindicated his son in the resurrection. Aaron's staff budding and God vindicating Aaron and saying, this is my man. Is the resurrection saying, the father saying, This is my man, Jesus Christ. This is my son. I've raised him up from the dead. Look to him and live. Any any one of these is like sermon worthy. A whole sermon. In 18 and 19, we see the description of outside the camp, individuals are brought and the the sacrifices are brought to be slaughtered. In 20 is, is the great decline again of the waters of Meribah and the bitterness of the people of God against God. We're going to hit that on the last uh, uh, sermon on the book of Numbers when we get into October. Final chapter here. We're back again. The Lord heeded the word of Israel. God's people begin to start to turn toward God. God's people cry out to God. They look to God. And they pray to God. And you see God heed the word of Israel. We see how responsive God is to prayer. Sometimes you doubt that prayer does anything. This is a verse that counters that. Let it sit on each one of us that when we pray, God will heed the word of you, brother, of you, sister, of you, teen. And he drives out the Canaanite leader. But then it degenerates once again. And they complain in Numbers 21. And this is where the second point, look to God and live, comes to full fruition. 
God provides fiery serpents and consequences to their rebellion. It actually says earlier in the scriptures in Numbers that not only did they put God to the test or put God to the proof, provoking him and breaking one of the Ten Commandments, but they also, it's God just said at one point to Moses, how long are these people going to despise me? Unbelief is a manifestation actually of despising God. And we tend to think like, oh man, doubt? That's not that big of a deal. We all doubt. And unbelief? What? Everybody struggles with unbelief. No. Uh, brothers and sisters, unbelief is a, is a threat to our souls and our spiritual well-being. We want to snuff it out right at the point where the enemy's trying to get a foothold on that doubt. And say, no, I'm not going to believe that. That is not true, Satan. And fight hard at the point of the entry of doubt. Israel, once again, despises God. And in Numbers 21, so sadly, they bring up that oft-repeated phrase, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, no water. And then, oh, how sad. The bread from heaven called manna. Here is unbelief's interpretation of bread from heaven. Worthless food. Oh, God, forgive me. And God, forgive us for how we look at your blessings like this in our lives. And we take the blinders off us, Lord, to see bread from heaven and all the blessings from heaven you've given to us in our lives for what they really are. And the Lord sent fiery serpents and the people began to die. But once again, God provides a remedy. God perseveres with His people. And He creates through Moses this bronze serpent to be set on a pole. All of that pointing to Christ and His death on the cross, John 3. When I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to Myself. Those who look to Christ will live. I couldn't resist this. I'm just going to ask the worship band to return. I'm going to read Spurgeon's testimony because it connects with this section of Scripture because some of you sometimes struggle with, how do you believe, Mr. Etter? How do you believe, CB? How do you repent and become a Christian? And Spurgeon got all tied up in knots over what real faith was and doubted that he really ever really truly believed and doubted that he really truly repented. And he was a mess over it before he got saved. And then this is what happened. And I hope this encourages your heart as the band comes forward. Listen carefully. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place of worship. I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. And in that chapel, there may have been a a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists and how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. I love that. But but that didn't matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister, the minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, Spurgeon says. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it is well that preachers be instructed. But this man was really stupid. He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. The text was, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pound a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. It's a great sermon. Ah, he said in broad Essex, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, Look to Him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto Me. Some on ye say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. 
You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. When he had managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether. And then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. And just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. And then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and to live. And I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I I didn't take much notice of it, for I was so possessed with that one thought. I had been waiting to do 50 things. This is great. Listen to this. Spurgeon said, I've been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. And there and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of the, of the precious blood of Christ and of the simple faith, which looks alone to Christ. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Oh, that happy day when I found the Savior and learned to cling to his dear feet was a day never to be forgotten by me. I listened to the word of God and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. I can testify that the joy of that day was utterly indescribable. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanatical, which would have been out of keeping with the joy of that hour. Many days of Christian experience had passed since then, but there has never been one which has had the full exhilaration, the sparkling delight which that first day had. I thought I could have sprung from the seat in which I sat and have called out with the wildest of those Methodist brethren, I am forgiven. I am forgiven. The monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. My spirit saw its chains broken to pieces. I felt that I was an emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted in Jesus Christ, plucked out of the miry clay and out of the horrible pit, with my feet set upon a rock and my goings established. Between half past ten when I entered that chapel and half past twelve when I was back again at home, what a change had taken place in me. Simply by looking to Jesus, I had been delivered from despair. And I was brought into such a joyous state of mind that when they saw me at home, they said to me, something wonderful has happened to you. And I was eager to tell them all about it. Oh, there was joy in the household that day when all heard that the eldest son had found the Savior and knew himself to be forgiven. Look to Christ and live. Let's all stand and look to him as we close in singing.